Hey folks, I'm Mark. It's the Unsung Podcast. And you are? Uh, I'm the social outcast. The social outcast. An REM fan. REM fan. Chris. <laughs> Chris. Welcome to the most controversial pod- music podcast in the internet. <laughs> yeah, so before we dive in yet, to give some context for that, if you've no idea what you're talking about, we put a couple of polls up on Instagram and Twitter asking if REM were the most divisive band that we have ever covered on the podcast and there was three, there was three answers <laughs> yes no and fuck off guess which one <laughs> guess which one was the most popular um yeah uh I, we've covered black metal and neo-nazis we've covered ace of base ace of base <laughs> more nazis uh, or well allegedly um once for, once and former um we've covered a lot of things that were thorny issues in this show who the thunk that REM would bring the most heat yeah. down on us. Quite quite indeed divisive. Um, <laughs> it's odd, isn't it? Because it's Yeah, like, I mean, by divisive, as I've pointed out, it's dividing me and the majority <laughs> of other people, yeah. apparently. I think it's weird, but uh, like we did say, in the, and uh, some people have also commented as well, that it's a generational thing. I think that is proven to be true, <laughs> given what all the people who like, I don't mind them or I like them or like, or like probably maybe even actually a bit older than you. <laughs> if um, that's possible <laughs> Chris isn't as very well known as being one of the oldest men that has ever lived <laughs> uh, Yeah I mean as I also mentioned on our AAA unsung members area Which you can access if you subscribe to the podcast Patreon.com for slash unsung pod Yeah you also get ad free episodes You get bonus stuff uh, Yeah there's loads of perks One of them is that you're able to sling mud at us directly mm. uh, This is where I took a large amount of heat um, <laughs> But I did make the point And I've kept my powder fairly dry And, and genuinely this is not aimed at you I know because I don't listen to indie music <laughs> Yeah but uh, we have co-hosts on this show That listen to some of the most wash stuff I've ever heard in my yeah. life <laughs> And I'm taking grief for like an REM I mean the nerve of some people Yeah it's- <laughs> Pretty, pretty redneck like <laughs> <laughs> couldn't paint a redneck yeah. folk honestly you mm-hmm. couldn't but I stand by it I mean I think I made that case in de- well I know I made it in detail because it was four hours long <laughs> 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 but, <laughs> I know I made that case it was a nuanced case it was thoughtful I did acknowledge that it's not as good as I remember but I did also you know try and get people to face up to the fact that sometimes we have preconceptions about musicians and we're we almost like dig our heels in we're like I'm not changing this I'm just not changing this this is fundamental to how I and it's like well, but what if it's not right and that, that's what that episode was about we, mm. we just try to like move the needle a wee bit on people and I think actually with you we moved the needle a wee bit mm. I think that was commendable it was like right I'm not under any illusions that you're a big REM fan but you were like no I kind of get it now I get the phases were different I get there's an age thing and I get that there are definitely some amazing examples of music in a big catalogue, which unavoidably has a lot of filler, you know. So I, I'm I'm kind of happy with that, you know. Bring it, just bring it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I can't remember that phrase. Slings and arrows, Shakespearean. Yeah. But you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Come at me. Come at me. Yeah. And if you want to come at me, <laughs> subscribe to the podcast and fucking come at me. Yeah. Then, right. You um, relish the challenge. Yeah. So uh, I. Passed the baton to Mark uh, this week, mm-hmm. and Mark, you have chosen to cover. The album is called Excavation, and the artist is the Haxan Cloak.
can I just say this is going to be the weirdest sample cutting that I've ever it's, done yeah, in it's this show. Point, it's kind of pointless, to be honest, man. <laughs> it's like try cutting sun or something. Yeah, you know? I, I usually <laughs> cut in 15 second samples. Of what the fuck am I achieving <laughs> with that example? <laughs> uh, well, I suppose you could cut in a, a soundtrack thing, but I suppose that's solo, isn't it? But I was going to ask you a question. Like, how has your existential dread been this week? <laughs> Heightened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fairly fucking oppressive stuff. Yeah, I mean... Funnily enough, we did uh, start the REM thing, talk about those episodes whereby we undertake a particularly arduous period of research. Mm. The research obviously includes listening to their back (laughs) catalogue. There's not many that are more dense or oppressive or, or, you know, mood altering (laughs) than the Axine cloak. It's not something you can just slam on. It definitely is not. It really changes your afternoon though. (laughs) It changes a lot about you as a person. You out for a cup of coffee, see someone you like, but you're listening to the Axine cloak and everything feels like you've got cancer. You're in a horror film. ending. (laughs) It's, yeah, it's it's impregnable. It's dense. It's arduous is, is a good way of describing that. And usually when we say that, I mean, maybe for you, you might think it's because it's been really tough and just not fun. Hacksand Cloak is tough, not fun and arduous, but that's the whole fucking point of it. Yeah. You, it's, you, know, it's, you know what I mean? It's a feature, not a bug. Yeah. Um, so yeah. We, this week we were doing the excavation by the Hacksand Cloak. The Hacksand Cloak is a one-man artist, Bobby Krillick. Uh, and I guess in this episode we'll go through uh, some of his records. Strange second name. He's of yeah. Serbian descent, right? Yeah, he is of Serbian descent. That's correct. Um, um, so can I just point out, uh, Haxan is Swedish for witch, mm-hmm. and I'm going to Sweden in two days. Going to Sweden, yeah. Yes. Bork, bork, bork. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't really understand what that was until you sent me the, the link to the Swedish the Muppets. <laughs> An all-time classic. Uh, I know we've got some listeners from Sweden. Uh, I'm going to Stockholm, uh, so give me a wave. Um, yeah, you'll but, see him. You have to. You'll be the one with the black cloud over his head. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, uh, I was also informed by my Swedish colleague that Stockholm uh, is the Edinburgh of Sweden. Oh, and that I shouldn't have chosen to go there. So, so is it Mal- Mal- Malmo? Is that the class? Yeah, they're, they're from Malmo. Yeah, uh, there's also Gothenburg, which yeah. is quite different. But hey, this is my first time, so uh, I'm, I'm just looking forward to it. Malmo is you can get to Copenhagen from Malmo. There's a bridge between them both. Yes, I know, and there's a very famous TV show. But <laughs> yeah. um, I'm also looking forward to some stinky fish. Yeah, yeah. how just. Oh. So, How do you say stinky fish? So is the, the, the dish <laughs> you're talking about is called Storm? Storm something, I think? It's like in a can, fermented. I'll know in four days. You'll hate it. Yeah, I'll bring it up next week. Um, maybe in multiple <laughs> senses. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably so. Yeah. Uh, anyway, you know, tell us a bit about this guy. I don't know a lot. So, Axan Cloak has released two records. Um, yeah, two, two, full, two, length two, rec- full, two full length records. albums of his stuff. As in, uh, under the name Hacks and Cloak. So, well, I mean, let's disambiguate that a little bit. The Hacks and Cloak, as we said, is Bobby Krillick. Um, Bobby Krillick has since stopped doing the Hacks and Cloak, it appears mostly. Well, no, because he just, he just a released a single, but he's mostly, but it's the first thing he's released in yeah. 11 years. And he kind of moved into movie soundtracks under his own under name. his own name, um, which does make a great deal of sense, and we will get to that very soon, I guess. But um, yeah, so he's released two records under the name Hacks and Cloak. Um, the first one, self-titled, two thousand eleven, and then the second one, this one, Excavation, two thousand and thirteen. Um, 
they are of a piece together. They literally run into one another, both the albums. The way the last one, the first one ends is how the second one begins. Uh, and they have a loose narrative. I don't know if you know about this. I do know about yeah. this. So the first album is about a guy that is dying. And the second one's about, uh, about what happens in the afterlife. <laughs> and he is on record as saying he's fucking terrified of dying and he decided to write two concept albums around it. But they have no vocals, so the concept is very loose. But yeah, it's pretty cool stuff, I yeah. think. Arty and experimental. There are some like, EPs and isolated releases as well. Mm-hmm. There was the self-titled EP in 2009, which is only available on CDR. Mm-hmm. And now on the internet... Um, there was Observatory It's a single in 2011 mm-hmm. uh, There was The Men Partied the Sea to Devour the Water Which is a fairly sort of celebrated EP In 2012 And then there was the single NY Last year Yeah, towards the end of last year, November I think it was 2023 Yeah, I mean I, I'm I'm pretty up for taking a little tour Through that discography Because I listened to it So I might mm-hmm. as well use that knowledge yeah. of suffering uh, Yeah, suffering and Hellraiser analogies Are probably... <laughs> Quite applicable this uh-huh. week, but um, I do want to point out that for this episode, I maintained objectivity despite the fact that Hacksaw and Cloak worked with health, and that is a sign of questionable judgment at best. Yeah. Oh, he did produce one track on our second album, was it Death Magic? It's just one song basically Shouldn't. I think it's an intro I think it's like an intro or, or like a really short song And it does sound like Axan Cloak Yeah he's done a few <laughs> Significant production jobs He did mm. stuff for Björk Björk And mm-hmm. he did The Body That Body That record by The Body Is very good And may actually come up In the podcast one day I Shall Die Here Alright but not in this one Not in this one <laughs> Okay <laughs> No I mean well, it's, As a record in and of itself For the record, I, I don't really care about the body as a band. Um, it was okay. You could definitely hear his production chops mm-hmm. loud and clear. In a different way from the way you might, for example, like when... Um, when Josh Holm did Arctic Monkeys, mm-hmm. the record sounded like one of his records, but their songs. And when, I don't know, let's say Kurt Ballou does something for a sort of similar sounding band, mm-hmm. it has tonal similarities, but yet the music is still essentially whatever he was recording. Mm-hmm. Right? Whereas uh, I feel like the body record the Hacks and Cloak sounds like a little bit more than just a producer engineer on it. There's bits of it where it sounds like it's made a material difference to the music on the yeah. record. That's interesting. And as I said, I'm not a body fan, so I was neither 
uh, pleasantly surprised nor disappointed. I mm-hmm. had no dog in that fight. I thought it was totally unremarkable. Mm-hmm. I would have said that about them anyway, so that doesn't really reflect on him. Mm-hmm. And then he's also done some production work for Gofrap. I didn't listen to the record because I don't like Goldfrap. Did you listen to it? Uh, no, I don't particularly care about Goldfrap yeah, either. Oh, well, in saying that, I mean, I think that's like, no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't say that. I mean, I respect Goldfrap. I don't listen to them, but I think it's like a really interesting project. And the, this, the environment in which it thrived, uh, it really stood out mm-hmm. at the time, and it's kind of uh, endured pretty well mm-hmm. as well. Like Goldfrap's really acquired a bit of a kind of cult status, and so I can also see why they might want to work with them. Because he brings like a kind of new production technique to stuff that maybe needed an injection or something fresh. Mm-hmm. I would probably listen to that actually. Mm-hmm. I, like, like I said, I don't sit and listen to Goldfrap, but that's not because I particularly hate them. It's just not music I spend a lot of time with. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I kind of get it with him. Yeah. And then he's also worked with uh, Serpent with Feet. Yes. Lost Under Heaven Wife as well. Yeah. Um, wife Caps. Yeah, Wife's quite interesting. I haven't listened to it, but the guy used to be in Altar of Plagues. Have you ever heard them? Yeah. Um, James Kelly sort of left that band and did his own thing. It's too far to see from a place Something that's vaguely similar to Hacks and Cloak, you know, like one man electronica, quite dark, you know. So Serpent with Feet is on mm. Triangle, which is the label really that we'll end up talking about. Um, our friend of the pod, Ben Power, introduced me to some of the acts in that label. Uh, Serpent with Feet was good. Um, Vessel, who we'll mention as we go through yeah. here, was particularly good and remains my favourite mm-hmm. on that, that label. Uh, so I, I owe Ben a thanks for bringing them to my attention some time ago. Um, and that was also when I first heard Tax and Cloak. Mm-hmm. Will we take a wee tour through the back cat? Yeah, let's do that. Tax and Cloak EP, as I said, it was on CDR, really, back in the day, 2009, self-released. This was an era when he was really building most of his stuff around strings, like mm-hmm. sampling and playing them and then modulating them quite a bit. It's very much Doom Drone. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen it listed as Folk Drone, which I think is really kind of quite appropriate. Um, the second track in it, The Splintered Wind, is just ultra-minimalist, but I think in a different way to the later electronic output. 
it, it's a hard thing to quantify it. It's, it's sparse, mm-hmm. but it's not sparse in a way where it feels like something's missing. And I know the later electronic stuff, seem, it claims to have been more uh, conveying a narrative. Mm-hmm. And so things are missing for a reason. That early stuff, it just seems like that's his sensibility. Yeah. I, I don't mind it. The third track on that is just called Live Excerpt from Shunt 2009, which I assume was a live show or a mini festival or something. And for the first few minutes of that track, I think it's actually extremely effective. It's, it's built around this sort of bagpipe-esque drone mm. with multiple layers and textures, uh, some really effective backward sampling as well, uh, and it totally justifies that folk drone label. only thing is that track does get pretty tedious, is for some reason he starts to extract the more interesting elements, and it ultimately just gives way to this really incessant mid-range drone that's somewhere mm. between a string and a bagpipe, and it, it, it just gets a little dull. really just like fucking about with some filters and you're like I don't really get what's happening now uh, but it, it starts really really well he followed that with an actual release Observatory as a single in 2011 the title track on this uh, the first track uh, is rhythmic really percussive It really reminds me of the aforementioned Vessel, especially the Punish Honey album, and that's that's a step up for me, um, albeit this was actually released a, a good year before Vessel's first record, Order of Noise, and probably about three years before Punish Honey, so I mean, I think at this point Vessel was a project, but I think he was only putting out you mm-hmm. know, the, the odd single. Say he, they. I'm not sure how Vessel identifies, but um, but to be fair, it perhaps Vessel took their cues from this rather than anything else. But they are the best cues, in my opinion. The second track in it is called Hounfor or Hounfor mm-hmm. uh, brackets Temple. It's this really low-key electronic atmospheric thing that builds really subtly and it ends with this weirdly blissed-out euphoric pad. It's it's pretty solid. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite abstract without being pretentious. Like, I get the feeling that that track in particular, it has similarities with some of the later stuff, but it feels willing to work to maintain your attention. You know, as yeah. the track evolves, it has a sense of, I should do something now because of, I've been doing this for a while, and if I do something now, people will re-engage. And it feels like it plays the game a little bit. And just frankly, I, I think that works. Mm-hmm. Um, then we get to the debut album. Um can I just ask you know to try and 
get to the root of the kind of introduction bias that we talk about in the show quite a lot where you know we all almost always end up with a slightly more favorable perception of the record that we first encounter in an mm-hmm. album's in an artist's catalog what did you listen to first by Hexen? it was excavation that i listened to first right i think uh, at the time it came out well i guess maybe maybe 2014 basically i was looking for a bunch of new stuff to listen to and i was just looking through end of year lists and i probably listened to a lot of things that were on that but nothing really stuck with me beyond the stuff i usually like and um, but there was something about excavation that really drew me in and then going back to listen to this first record i was like I can see how this is the same artist, but it's not. It doesn't really have the things which I found quite enthralling about Excavation. I didn't really find him on on the self-titled record. Still a good record, I think, but it wasn't for me as compelling. I, I think I can understand that. I think you are a big fan of hip hop. When I think of your music tastes, I think you are quite mindful of production. Uh, I think you know all the way from like Jay Dilla, Run the Jewels, to some of the, some of the more kind of uh, esoteric stuff that we've done. I think you pay quite a lot of attention to beats, to sub, all those kind of things. For whatever reason, that's not as much on my radar. So I can understand how you would get into an artist that has such a reputation for production. I noticed actually in a lot of forums, people talking about Hacks and Cloak, like people who are engineers saying that uh, he has amongst the best natural talent they've ever heard for uh, with regards to the clarity and definition of extremely low end tones. Definitely. Yeah. His, his, his work with the bass on albums is just brilliant. Like, yeah, I think there's this... When I think about excavation, I think to myself, the venue you would need to be able to play some of that stuff in has to be seriously carried yeah, out. You, you need a good sound system, but he seems very, very adept at that stuff. And frankly, when you're making music, just because of the bias of the human ear, some people just tend to not be as good. And it also takes good equipment to control sub and things like that. So this this first LP, I can appreciate as well why you might not be as drawn to it, because it's not as modern sounding. not nearly as electronic as excavation it's, a, it's much more organic feeling as yeah, well so again yeah. a bit like that opening ep uh, it was built around field recordings sampled sounds mm. a lot of string work i think he was playing you know string he played a lot of the stringed instruments uh, on like it in a shed or something like yeah that. and his parents shed at the bottom uh, of the yeah. garden yeah um it's also yeah, a lot of that string work's really modulated and i think as an aesthetic experience it's pretty impressive in that sense To me, I mean, we know that this guy does eventually go into soundtracking. This quite often sounds less like a, a coherent album than it does a portfolio kind of pitching for film work. Mm, it's very dark. I mean, I hesitate to even say that because that's such an obvious thing to say as soon yeah. as you hear this. this that word's going to become meaningless yeah, quite quickly. <laughs> it's so redundant, yeah. 
the, the first track in it, Raven's Lament, suitably sinister droning strings at the start. I will say there's a really cringy xylophone that comes in about 240. Yeah, it's really creepy, which kind of makes me go, ah. But the thing is, I think it just, it, it feels to me like it's trying too hard to be unnerving. You know, it reminded me of, you know, in crap horror films when you suddenly hear a creepy kid's voice, look behind you, Gabriel, Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Or, you know, that effect they used to do in horror films where someone's like a ghost's face would twitch, like, Mm -hmm. do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It was like, it was very in vogue for Uh about five years. Uh They would go, oh, and they would move in this really unnatural way very quickly. A jerking. Yeah, I just, that. Like that glockenspiel or, or xylophone, actually, I think it is. It's just too cheesy. It's like, oh, look, he's trying to be creepy. Mm-hmm. It really jars with me. And I think it's a, a bit of a naive decision that he probably wouldn't make now. Mm. Do, you, do you know what I mean? It's certainly, I think so, yeah. By the time he does the second album, I don't think he's doing anything as twee as that. Mm. Um, I think that first track, though, really portends to some of the film. You're right, it's like a portfolio. And Raven's Rament. Raven's Rament. Raven's Rament. Raven's Lament. Raven's Lament. The way the strings are, are de- deployed in it is something which she kind of later comes back to in like the Midsummer soundtrack, uh, but he does it yes. in a much more refined way with a lot more finesse, you know. Um, so you can hear the ear is definitely there and the, the, the sensibility is certainly there. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that for a guy who is known for electronic and production that a lot of, like, he's also just adept at manipulating strings and mm. making them sound uncanny. Well, one of the best examples of that is the fourth track, Disorder. It's I think a really good song. It's the musical highlight, I think. Um, it starts with a sort of folk drone that informs the coldest bits of false Lancome. Yeah, that's exactly what yeah. I thought. Uh huh. I think some of Lancome's appeal, as we know, lies in their ability to sort of straddle the spaces between powerfully hip acts and fan bases like Godspeed, like Sun, and now like Hacks and Cloak. They have a kind of appeal across those lines. You see, you go to their shows and you see the most bizarre array of t-shirts. Um, but Dave, um, I met Dave a few weeks ago, uh, last week, and he was he was at the Lancome gig and that's what he was saying. He's like, you could be standing next to a crusty punk guy and a black metal guy on the other side and then you've got all these people like folk music, like old folk punks and stuff. And, like, a, and, and Totally bizarre. Yeah, and this, uh, that's why listening to this era, the Hacks and Cloak, um, hearing similarities and mm. how people could definitely cro- like make that jump as well. Um, you can hear a lot of the deeper cuts from Constellation Records on here as well, bands like Exhaust and Hanged Up and things like that.
folk horror is a good tag for this style of music. Creaking, clanking woodshed noises are kind of equal parts Evil Dead, maybe Evil Dead too. <laughs> and uh, you know that track, What's He Building in There by Tom Waits? What's He Building in There? Yeah. Someone moaning low. I keep seeing the blue light of a TV show. He has a router and a table saw. And you won't believe him. Yeah. And they're effective. But the thing is that. That Tom Waits track was always a novelty to me. Totally, it and, is, yeah. And frequently this record feels a bit novelty. Like the third track, Burning Torches of Despair, is undeniably like technically impressive, but comes across as a bit of theatre to me. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't really come across as like a musical endeavour. Yeah. Um, can I just point out the growing on that on the first the first album? Sorry, because um, that that starts to bring in the electronics and it kind of foreshadows what's going to come. They're still strings, uh, but they're processed in such a way that they kind of feel like they're under a layer of grime and distortion, which again is something that he does in places and excavation. And there's also some uh, trip poppy kind of percussion that comes in during that song around five minutes as well. Which would actually make sense as to why somebody like Goldfrapp might want to work with them, or vice versa, because of that, the way those kind of beats sound. I mean, I did find myself warming to the first record, especially considering it was a first record, and the guy didn't yet have that blanket praise and genius status, de facto genius status thing. It's a cool idea, it's a brilliantly technically realised weird vision. Um, it's ultimately a bunch of creepy noises and dark folk moods really quite beautifully grouped together on the, a collection. Yeah. Um, the 2012 EP, The Men Parted the Sea to Devour the Water. Reasonably well thought of, I believe. Um, one giant movement, but subdivided for mm-hmm. those that are in the know. Different approaches and textures throughout. So really looping choral vocals that cloud the first nine and a half minutes. I like where the song goes from between that, from about the nine minutes up until about 12 minutes. I really enjoy what it does but then it shifts tone really awkwardly and I'm just not really convinced about the record from that point mm-hmm. there's these percussive textures at 15 minutes or 15 and a half minutes maybe that are, are great like they sound amazing but the track feels like it's lost its way a bit 
Again, it blisses out at the end, but it feels very rote. Now, I mean, it's just a rote, blissy synth ending, and you're like, all oh, right, okay, so five minutes of just euphoric whatever. It, I didn't like the way that that promising EP halfway just seemed like it came off the rails to me. Mm. Yeah, it seems a bit clunky, I suppose. You know, I, I admire the desire to, that kind of rhyme saying, I admire the desire that to, to create a song, to create one long piece. And I don't think he's ever really, he's, he's certainly never uh, attempted anything of that length since. You can't really do that with soundtracks, obviously, but even in, I think even in Excavation, the longest song is only 13 minutes long. Um, well, we'll get on to soundtracks. Yeah, <laughs> but it's I. I think maybe that's probably a niche you needed to scratch. Yeah, you know? I mean, I, I've heard these live sets, and it does sound a bit like one of his live sets, just somewhat condensed. Um, he did excavation, obviously, twenty thirteen, uh, and then twenty fifteen. We'll just he's done a lot of like bits and bobs of TV work, bits and bobs yeah. of soundtrack work. I've just dipped into some of them. The first, I've got a few as well. First one is twenty fifteen Black Hat. Uh, the Michael Mann film Chris Hemsworth Chris Hemsworth yeah. plays a hacker he worked on this with Atticus Ross and by any standards that's a bit of a promotion pretty if, much yeah, yeah. If, you're, if you're at the point where you're getting invited onto projects by Atticus Ross that's that's great I'm not sure what he actually did on this soundtrack because most of the composition was done by Harry Gregson Williams and this is where we start to like bite into the reality of doing soundtracks okay so I just know secondhand, admittedly um, from a couple of friends who work in the industry and have gone into soundtracking how fucking difficult it is and it's not just in the sense of making it sound good but what I mean is the fact that it is uh, many, many cooks. Um, Harry Gregson Williams on that soundtrack said that he was, quote, shocked and surprised at the music that appeared in the final film. I would like it to be known for what it's worth that the score for Black Hat may be credited to me, but contains almost none of my compositions. He went on to describe the quasi-emotional synth string pieces that had replaced his own work. I was not the author of most of what is now in that movie. Mm -hmm. And that is just one take on what I've heard pretty reliably as regards people putting together mixes, putting together first drafts, thinking this is actually sounding great, and then doing some fucking Skype call where there's like six random people that Mm -hmm. they're not even sure what they do in the production, Mm -hmm. and they're like, yeah, can you take that out? Could you maybe do some piano here? Could you maybe... I don't think we need any percussion here. Oh, how about we add some percussion here? And then suddenly you've gone from being a chef, being asked to prepare something delicious to someone saying, I'd really just like a hamburger. Mm -hmm. Could you go in and just make me a fucking hamburger, please? You know, well, why did you hire me if you just wanted a fucking hamburger? Well, you're here now. Could you just turn it into a hamburger, please? And that seems to be the reality. I mean, certainly... Maybe maybe once you're like powerful enough that you could force things through. I don't know what Trent Reznor's experience is of doing soundtracks, but it is way less glamorous than it, it than it seems. And, yeah, and I'm not sure. I've heard the same things about doing TV stuff. 
I'm not sure whether TV and film one is better than the other, um, but I know there's a hell of a lot of people with an opinion that like to get involved and I know that things go down to the wire and you suddenly get asked to change things at the last minute when you think you're done then it starts eating into your next project and eating into your next project and you're fucking losing sleep and I just, I know it's like a really difficult thing to do. I know, I, I, to kind of bring up Trent Reznor, that was actually quite interesting because one of the things that he found difficult when Ernest Nails is like writing songs and having something to say He's on record as saying, actually, there's an interview in 2023 where he actually says that one of the best things that he enjoys about doing soundtracks is working in service to something else. I imagine that, you're probably right, at his level, there's probably not a lot of cooks coming in there to try and stir his pot, you know what I mean? But I think there's still necessarily quite a collaborative process with a filmmaker, you know, in order to create something which kind of meets their vision and also yours. When you get to that level, then... They're hiring you because they like what they've heard already. They're probably not going to try and fuck around with it too much. Well, I don't know if that's... But I don't know. I, yeah, I don't know if that's actually true, yeah. to be honest with you. But we'll come back to that in a second. Because just before we go on to his next soundtrack that I wanted to bring up, um, we should mention Mouth Mantra by Bjork. Twenty fifteen, mm. and it's exactly what I expected. Bjork singing all the Bjork notes you would expect her to <laughs> sing. I mean, the, you know, I have to admit this this podcast did make me sort of like question how much I actually like Bjork as well. Um, but we'll come back to that. The, the vocal in this is remarkably submerged um, and is backed by some quite raspy, loud, loud in the mix, uh, and quite sinister electro. The whole thing seems to owe a lot to Aphex Twin though When I was listening to it It just really felt like someone mm-hmm. was doing a version of Aphex Twin I was not um, I've no issue with the song really It's very very stylish um, I don't think it's great I don't really give a fuck about Bjork's vocal line on mm-hmm. it. It's just so fucking Bjork. I have heard this a million times. Like, I have heard Bjork do Bjork a million times. Anyway, I don't know why. That just got under my skin a wee bit. Um, in that tune, there is a particularly nice bit uh, around about 310. It's this really lush little four orchestral break. It doesn't last long, but it's a nice little melodic payoff given that the rest of the song isn't really that melodic. Yeah, um, It's... It's just, it's all right. Um, and I don't know what other soundtracks you wanted to come to, but I really wanted to talk about Midsummer. Of course, why, why? How could you not talk about yeah, Midsummer? So, 2019, I mean, it, it, it's a breakout film for Ari Aster. You know, as yeah. much as I personally think Hereditary is a better movie, um, I think Midsummer's really good. Uh, it's very stylish as well. I haven't well. seen it. You haven't seen Midsummer? It's, uh, aye, it's good. One thing I'll say about Midsummer is I've not really had the inclination to go and rewatch it as much as I enjoyed it. I actually saw it twice at the cinema and then I expected I'd want to go back and see it again, but for whatever reason, I, I don't. That's all right. Nothing wrong with that. I, I and no. It's a wee bit like music. There's a bit of an analogy there for music where some music is very impressive and you're like, I'd never want to hear it again. Mm. And you're like, well, was I impressed by the technical proficiency of it or did I actually enjoy it? Or was it just so harrowing that I never want to see mm. it again? But yeah. anyway, um, folk horror is the tag that I used for Hacks and Cloak, and folk horror is the tag for Midsummer. Clearly, 
Um, Do you want to know a bit of trivia about this uh, soundtrack? Aye, hit me. Um, you may have read it, I don't know, but um, Ari Aster wrote the script for this to Excavation by the Hacks and Cloak. He was like, when I finished this script, there's only one person that wanted the, the, sound, the, the soundtrack for it, and it was Bobby, obviously. And they approached him and said, look, I, I wrote your script, I wrote this script to the soundtrack of Excavation, and now I really want you to do it. And apparently, like, Bobby felt quite a lot of pressure, because it's like, well, you've written it with me in mind, listen to my music, and now I need to try and create something which is like that, but nothing like that, because the film isn't really about with that. That record's about, well, you, you know what I mean? The film's so, very sunny. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, quite a unique challenge, but pretty cool to get the nod from the director, like, directly. That, that yeah. answers a question that I was going to ask later on, so we'll come back to that. But um, this, uh, you, you actually mentioned this earlier on, it's closer to the earlier stuff, uh, you know, the self-titled record, given the preponderance of the strings on it. Yeah. You also mentioned this, and I think it's a good point when we're talking about the collaborative nature of doing a soundtrack. The music is dictated by the action. Mm-hmm. So whilst this is his score, he's not really at the wheel. He is soundtracking what is being decided by the, the, the film's mm-hmm. editors and production and direction. That means he's also kind of forced to get a move on. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helps his material. I will say going back to that, you know, the Gregson Williams experience, uh, as we described in Black Hat, from watching it unfold, the painful amount of to and fro that takes place, you know, with directors and producers, uh, these these scores are, as I said, not the authored brilliance of one person. Mm-hmm. They are more like the compromise of many that is then realised by one. Mm-hmm. Bobby will probably have multiple other ver- versions and approaches even lying on hard drives that will never be released and to be honest very probably versions that he prefers mm-hmm. that the studio or the director or all of the above just were like no we want this one and he'll be like well that's not the best one but fuck it whatever mm. I'm sick of doing this now and that seems to be the reality for a lot of people doing mm. s- soundtracking as well uh, the tracks in this the third one I think like Halsingland I don't know how you actually Halsing Halsingland yeah yeah mm-hmm. um Tracks like that are they're pretty meaningless without their visual context. Absolutely, yeah. It's it's not Survivor kicking out Eye of the Tiger. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't go away from the movie and be like, yeah, mm-hmm. it's just fucking meaningless it's like synchronized ambience with the odd jump scare mm-hmm. you know a tonal string jump scare thing and i really struggle to have any meaningful listening experience with stuff like this as a result when there's not the visual cues uh mm-hmm. alongside it it's uh, one of the one of the analogies i thought of it's like watching half a football match and by half a football match i don't mean like the first or second half i mean you can only see one team so you're like mm-hmm. Uh, was was that a good pass? Was that a bad pass? What were the other team doing when that <laughs> happened? I wonder, like, you know... Th- no there's, idea, There's yeah. just a sort of, like, meaninglessness to it mm-hmm. where you're just sort of like, 
I, I don't really know if I, this that was a good way to soundtrack what was going on because I don't know what the fuck was going on. Um, the twelfth track in it, Fire Temple, um, has way more plays yes. than than other stuff there, and it does stand up much more by itself. Pretty epic and mournful and expansive, almost bombastic towards the end, and kind of vaguely joyful towards the end as well. It's yeah, it's it's an odd. But all the none, all the things I just said there are quite contradictory. <laughs> but it is it is all those things. I mean, it's a long track. It's yeah. it's pleasant. It's kind of a symphonic workout. It's you know what? It reminds me a bit of like Godspeed if they were soundtracking something in the nineteen forties because mm. it's something that there's something quite old timey and deliberately a little little bit cliched about it. has a really memorable flourish and root change at six minutes it's got this really nice bit in it but I feel like without the context of the movie listening to a soundtrack like this all I'm really doing is trying to work out if this guy's technically proficient Mm -hmm. and he is I mean I know he is so I really don't really get what else there is to add it's not what I would consider a good listening experience overall because I'm just sort of like unmoored like oh well okay cool that was a that was a sinister bit All right. And that was a, a that was a noise, and that was a bassy noise. I, I just find it a very odd thing to listen to. Mm-hmm. I G- agree. Given that it's not meant to flow musically. Yeah, that's that is the thing that's quite interesting. I think about a lot of soundtracks is that taken in isolation, they can be a kind of a discombobulating listen because you're like, oh, that sounds cool, but then it never really a lot of them, a lot of the songs, quote unquote songs, never really stick around long enough for you to get into them. Um, and there's a soundtrack which I liked because I liked the TV show. Beef, which we can talk about in a little second, which is full of those little kind of snippets of cool ideas and music, which work really well in the show, but are so incidental in the show, it's like difficult to judge on its own. But maybe in the back of such a big soundtrack, we split for the episode there. Um, yeah, because I want to talk about the Return of Soundtrack. Yeah, so. I got a feeling you might. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll come back next week and we'll look at just a few more releases that he's been involved in. And uh, we can maybe chew the fat a bit about, you know, soundtracking or the transition into soundtracking in general. But I'd also like to look at, you know, some of the context because there's a few there's a few acts going back in time that that he, he reminds me of. And I think they deserve a nod. So let's uh, hold that back for the next episode. Yeah, you can come back in probably about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> See you then. See you then. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.